Well, good evening and welcome to the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar. My name is Gerald Chester. It's my privilege to present this material to you and my prayer is that you will be greatly blessed as you're challenged to think about the purpose of God for your life. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace and favor through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the intentionality of your nature and how you, you decide what it is you want done in your universe and you decide who to create, when to create them and what, they're, what role they're to play in your divine meta-narrative. So Father, just give us grace as we talk, as we share, as we go deeper with you tonight to really see from a more profound perspective the purpose for which you have created each one of us. So Lord, we commit this time to you. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar, and this is a seminar really about you and about why God made you. Now, I'm a little reluctant to say it that way, so let me explain what I mean. What I mean is that God has created you with intent and purpose, and I'm not trying to encourage you to become narcissistic. What I'm trying to do is encourage you to die to your agenda and to try to discern God's agenda for your life and be willing to now live out his purpose for your life. That's really the essence of what this seminar is all about. Now, many think that, well, I go to church, I've gone to church all my life, so I know this stuff. Well, my experience teaching this material for nearly 20 years is that virtually no one I've run into, no matter how uh, churched they may be, understands this very well. There are some that do have some understanding, but by and large, most have a very, very low level understanding of the purpose of God at all, much less the purpose of God for their lives. So we want to begin to challenge you tonight with this material to think more profoundly. Now, the seminar is going to be presented in seven sessions. This is session one. It's entitled Your Vision and God's Vision. And the purpose of this session is to really challenge you to consider what is your vision and then compare that to what God's vision might be. And my, my hope is that you'll have more, a more profound sense that your vision and God's vision are probably not too lined up. If they happen to be well lined up, I applaud you. Wonderful. That is where you want to be. You want your vision and God's vision coming together. Now, I'm not talking about you compromising with God. I should use a different illustration. This is, this is God's vision, and this is your vision. What I'm trying to encourage you to do is to give up your vision and take his. Not trying to meet him halfway. This is dying to self to take on the purpose of God for your life and really live that out. So this first introductory session is designed to kind of set the stage for you to start thinking this through. Then the next session will be discussing blocks. And many people have asked me, why have you put blocks next? And the reason for it is simple. This is where people get hung up, right here. If you can't recognize the things that block you from seeing God's purpose for your life and engaging with discovering that purpose, if you can't recognize those blocks, then you'll be stuck. You will not move forward. You will just pretty much be spinning your wheels. So hopefully nobody wants to do that. You want to get free from these blocks so you can run your race unimpeded. 
So you have to understand the blocks. You have to understand about how to deal with the blocks. Thinking about the blocks is like, uh, like weights around your ankles and you're trying to run a race. And when you get rid of those weights, you can really run. But you've got to be proactive about getting rid of those weights. The next session, session three, is really an introduction to the key principle of this training, which is the C4 principle. The C4 principle is all about discovering the purpose of God for your life by using these four C components. You will find this principle throughout Scripture in many, many texts. We will illustrate it to you in a couple of texts and show you how Scripture uses it to direct people and guide them into the call of God. In addition, we'll talk in the third session about the first component of C4, which is calling. Calling is really the cry of God he's put deep in your heart. And as you begin to get a picture of the call of God, you get to get a picture of the destiny that God has in you. Character is the second element of C4. That's our fourth session. And character is kind of the flip side of the blocks. The blocks are kind of like weights around your ankles. And then character is like putting jets on your strapping jets onto your side. So now you've got a boost in your ability to run your race. It's not just you running. You've got these jets pushing you along because you are lining up with the character of God in your life. And so you have favor incredible favor you just things happen and doors open and it's incredible what you're able to to get done to accomplish then capability is the fifth session this is all about the skill and ability god's put in you why is it that you do what you do and you can do what you do well it's because god has sovereignly made you the way you are and gifted you so you could do those things the sixth session is commissioning advisors this session, I find, uh, is probably one of the most challenging uh, for people in the culture today. Now, if you go in a culture where the people understand community, commissioning and advisors is not a, not a problem at all. They understand that immediately. But in cultures like I see in the U.S. today and really around the world, which are very independent cultures, meaning that people think independently, they don't think in terms of community. When you have that kind of culture, understanding commissioning and advisors and how they help you will be challenging. Probably some of the most difficult conversations I've had with people over the years in applying this material has dealt with this area of commissioning. Really believing that God will work through authority figures to guide you and direct you. And the typical comment I hear is, you don't understand how ungodly my commissioning agents are. Well, I'm sorry I do, because I've seen them, I've experienced them too. But nevertheless, God still works through ungodly people. That is the sovereignty of God at work that we have to recognize. And a great example of this was the pagan king Cyrus in Isaiah 45, who is called God's anointed, a pagan king. Now, we're not used to calling people anointed who are pagan. We call, people who are anointed in our mind are people that we think are really godly people, not necessarily an anointed person is a person God is using to accomplish his purpose. And they may or may not be believers. In some cases, they may be rank unbelievers, but God is not impeded. He can still accomplish his purpose. And when you see that he sovereignly places you under other people where they have authority over you, and he's sovereignly working through them to accomplish his purpose, you realize he is Lord of all. 
even Lord of the Pagans. So commissioning advisors is session six and session seven is developing your life plan. This is where you begin to put together a picture of what you believe God has put you here to do. And you begin to identify the things you should do. And the reason this is so important is you look at yourself and you realize there are a lot of things you could do in life. You could take your skill and ability and relationships and all kinds of things, a lot of things you could do. The question is not, can you do it? The question is, should you do it? And you just look at Jesus and you see he was a person who operated in the should, not just in the could. You see the should is a subset of your could. If, if, my, if I, my hands are representing a circle and that's all the things you could do, the should part is probably a really teeny tiny part of it. Jesus went for the should. And learning how to do that is very, very challenging and that takes great maturity. If you can't distinguish the should from the could, the enemy will have an easy time with you because he'll get you distracted doing things you can do because you'll see them as something that's important and needs to be done. Now, the way that you'll know that it's not something you're called to do is you will not bear much fruit. You'll spend a lot of time and energy and get almost nothing for it. God is into producing fruit. When I'm doing what I should do, there will be fruit. Some way, somehow. So this is why developing your life plan is so critical. Getting clarity on what God has called you to do, specifically what you should do, not just what you could do. So that's a big picture overview of what we're going to be talking about over the next seven weeks as we go through this material together. Now, many of you, uh, probably, in fact, probably all of you have expectations uh, about this seminar and it's very, very typical that people come in here uh, usually after a busy day or a lot of issues going on in their life and they're kind of distracted. So I want to encourage you to, to mentally prepare yourself for whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life through this training. So that means you have to set aside your worries, your, your regrets, your, the things you're fretting over, the things you're concerned about, and just mentally put them aside and say, you know, They'll all be there tomorrow. I'm going to focus today on what it is the Spirit wants to say to me tonight through this venue, through this training, through the conversation that's going to happen in this seminar. So if you can do that, then you can begin, I think, to receive what the Holy Spirit wants you to receive. You see, the real test for any training is what is the Holy Spirit wanting to teach you? It's not so much what the presenter is trying to teach you. The presenter certainly is trying to convey things, but a wise presenter is recognizing, you know, it's not up to me. I don't transform anybody. The Holy Spirit transforms you. I'm here as a tool. In some way, I'm praying I'm lining up with him so that he can use what we say and discuss and go through tonight to help transform you the way he wants to transform you. So this is all about alignment with him. Now, you have some expectations, just about, it's hard not to come into an event like this and not, and not have expectations. Most of us, our expectations are around, you know, I want to fix a problem. I'm here because I'm in pain. I'm hurting, I'm wounded, something's wrong, something's not right, I don't feel right, I need to fix my life. That's why people come. 
people don't generally come to a seminar like this because they feel like they got their act together. They come here because there's pain. And God is in pain. In fact, he tells us in James 1 to count it all joy when you encounter various trials and tribulations of life. Now, how many of you walked in here tonight counting it all joy the trials and tribulations that God has in your life? Most of us don't do that. That's not the way we think today. The way we think today is that God's there to take care of those problems. He's supposed to eliminate them so we don't have to suffer. Well, God's not into making us feel comfortable. He's into transforming us. He's into saving us from the power of sin. He saved us from the penalty of sin through the process of regeneration, but regeneration was just the first step in the process of salvation. The next step is being delivered from the power of sin, and that happens through the Holy Spirit transforming us so that we think more like Christ and we act more like Christ, we speak more like Christ. So that's the process we're in right now. And ultimately, once God takes us from this existence into the next, then we'll realize the fullness of salvation. Those are the three tenses of salvation. Past regeneration, present is sanctification, future is glorification. That's what salvation looks like. Now, commonly today, we talk about people getting saved. We have kind of a I would call a fairly trivial understanding of salvation. We need a more biblical understanding. So we need to be talking about, you know, in this sound of setting, what is God doing to sanctify us, which is part of saving us. In fact, those of you who have been in Dudley's class on uh, 1 Peter, you'll notice in chapter 2, he talks about how we have to yearn for the spiritual milk of the word because by it we are being saved. Do you hear that? Present tense, it's a process. The word of God is a tool the Holy Spirit uses. Well, this seminar is a tool that I pray the Holy Spirit will use where the word of God is brought to you and you're challenged with that truth. So I wanna suggest that an expectation that God's gonna fix all your problems or you're here to, at the end, you wanna know exactly what you're supposed to do in life. Those kinds of expectations are not a correct expectation for this seminar. What this seminar is all about is giving you the tools to be in the process of growing and maturing in Christ so you can discover the purpose of God for your life. It's a process that will go on the rest of your life. You don't just go through this seminar and, okay, I've got it, got it together. No, you don't, that isn't the way it works. God is working with you till the very day that you die. As long as there's breath in your body, there's reason for your being. As long as there's reason for your being, there is transformation happening in you so you can do that which God has called you to do. So I want to just suggest that God has given us all kinds of clues that this is a proper view. And one of the clues is when you begin to do the things that you're going to learn in the seminar and you begin to grow up in Christ in a profound way, you will find peace and joy and contentment. Would you like that? I think most of you, you're here because you don't have all of that, at least to the measure that you would like to have it. So this is an opportunity to go deeper. Now, to just kind of validate the value of this, there was a researcher named Charles Murray who is a self-proclaimed agnostic. And he did a study of human history trying to understand what is it that drove human accomplishment? What enabled mankind to advance 
to really make these technological breakthroughs that we're used to seeing and now in the 21st century, it's a common thing for us. But what is it that drove this? Now he presumed, and he, long, he actually later realized this was a wrong presumption, that he would find technological advancement would be spread uniformly among all the worldviews of the world. And he was surprised to find that wasn't true. What he found was that human accomplishment was almost exclusively found in cultures that embraced the idea of personal destiny, that created a context for you to fulfill your personal destiny, and then supported people who felt called to pursue that personal destiny. So when you have those ingredients coming together, human accomplishment, human advancement seems to happen. And he, by, in his own words, said this. He said, Those, that culture, that context for human accomplishment is almost exclusively found in one worldview, and that is Christianity. Christianity is the reason why we enjoy the blessings that we have today. When you walk out this door and you look at a hospital, that's a testimony to Christ. You look at the school, graded education came from Christ. You look at, at, um, at the technology we have, the information technology we have, that's all come from men and women pursuing the call of God on their life. It doesn't matter what it is in life. You look at it, you're going to see men and women felt called to do something that contributed to that, whatever that thing is, transportation whether it's automobiles or airplanes or communications. How about the food supply? You know, the Cyrus McCormick, a very godly man, he alone he was used of God to enable one man to produce the food for 10. Prior to Cyrus McCormick's reaper, it took nine men to produce the food for 10. Once the reaper was installed and was, became prominent in the world and it became a worldwide machine, one man could produce the food for 10. That came from a godly man who nearly went broke but did not give up because he felt the call of God on what he, was, what he did. So when you, when you get to see this, you realize, wow, you know, God has placed me here and he has a purpose and he has a plan and my job's to get lined up with him. Now you're beginning to see reality. You're beginning to understand what God is really all about. All right, so I want to go ahead and get into this first session here, which is all about your plan. And uh, just to kind of set the context here, a few years ago I was exercising and was watching TV, and Vanessa Gredgrave came on in a commercial, and she said this, she said, I want to die eating chocolate or out of exhaustion from dancing the tango. Well, I'm enough of a worldview thinker that caused me to stop my exercise and say, what is this? I want to die eating chocolate or out of exhaustion from dancing the tango? I mean, what kind of purpose is this? Well, this is called hedonism. This is the worship of pleasure. This is all about having fun. And you know, fun is the big deal now. You hear it, I hear it commonly in just about every context, including our Christian communities. And I, I hear it in parenting. Parenting taught parents, I've heard parents, many of them say, well, I just want to be sure my children have fun. 
and my wife being an educator, she's finally uh, realized that, you know, she has to deal with something. So she, uh, very contrary to her nature, she's a very fun-loving person herself, but very contrary to her nature, she's now beginning to respond to those parents and saying things like, fun? What's fun got to do with it? Which, you know, if those of you know my wife, know that's a very hard thing for her to say because she loves fun. But the reality is we tend to think like the culture. That's how we think. We may go to church. We may have been in church for all of our lives. We may attend Bible studies, may lead Bible studies, but we still think a lot like the culture. What I want to challenge you with in this training is to think biblically. And I want you, want you to see the standard. This is the standard Jesus put out there for himself. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. So he, that is God, humbled the Israelites and allowed the Israelites to hunger, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm providing physical food for you. I'm caring for you in ways that you can't possibly understand, so you will know that my word is more important than physical food. Now, that is a really challenging idea. This is the text that Jesus used when he countered Satan's temptation when he was in the desert being tempted. And Satan said, if you are the son of God, and was Jesus the son of God? Yeah, he was. He was the son of God. If you're the son of God, turn the stones into bread. Now, he had been fasting for 40 days. Anybody tried a 40-day fast? Not easy. You know he was starving. And you know he could turn those stones into bread. And the enemy says, if you're the son of God, prove it. Turn those stones into bread. And Jesus quotes this text right here. He's basically saying, the father has not authorized me to turn the, bread, the stones into bread. I can do it, but I don't have the authority from the father to tell me to do it. So I'm not doing it. It doesn't matter how hungry I am. Man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that's the profound challenge to step up and live at a whole nother level of reality where God is directing us and guiding us into his will and his ways. Peter Drucker, one of the great management theorists of the 20th century, um, as he got older in life, he seemed to get more spiritual. Uh, if you read his later writings, you really see some incredible sensitivities to truth. For example, there's a chapter where he talks about the purpose of business in the book called The Essential Drucker, which is a compendium of some of his greatest works. And in that chapter, he starts out by saying this. He said, when you think about the purpose of business, most business people would tell you would be to make a profit, and most economists would agree with them. And then he gets really in your face. He says, this is stupid. That's not the purpose of business. Anybody who thinks like that doesn't understand business at all. And then he proceeds to go on and lay out the purpose of business is to serve some social purpose, some higher purpose. It's not really about the money. Oh yeah, you, you will make money and you need to make a profit. That's true. But that is a low level purpose. The high level purpose is you are there in that organization to meet some need that God has called you to meet. So Drucker began to see that and began to write about that. So one of the things also he saw was the importance of getting vision for the purpose of your life. 
So here's something he said that I think really is relevant to what we're talking about here. The goal, Peter said, is not just long life or even a prosperous one. It's to make a meaningful life out of an ordinary life. Now, how many of you think you just live live an ordinary life? Most of you, if you're honest, yeah, yeah, you do. You don't want to raise your hand, do you? But I know you, how you think. Because most of my students, they think they live a very ordinary life. But Drucker's saying, don't you want to make, live a meaningful life? Don't you want your life to count? Well, yeah, you do. Deep down, you want to know you count. All right, so at some point, everybody wonders, what's it all about anyway? Wonder that? Yeah, we probably do. Life is often perplexing, and merely chasing the dream may not be enough. You hear a lot of people in the culture talking about chase your dream. And then you have the other guys coming out saying, don't chase your dream because you can't make any money at it. You hear that? I mean, you get all these conflicting sounds going on out there because it's all words of the culture. These are not divine words. These are not the words of God. The question most half-timers, now half-timers is a term for people that subscribe to the philosophy of Bob Buford. Now, Bob Buford's philosophy is that you spend the first half of your life getting financially secure, and then you spend the last half of your life now making your life count. Of course, the challenge with all that is assumes that you know when, when the halftime will be. And most of us don't know when that's going to be. We don't know how long we're going to live. So I really don't subscribe to that philosophy at all. I subscribe to the philosophy that you start making your life count now. You start now. You don't wait. You don't wait till you have so much money in the bank and you've done this and done that and had your kids, raise your kids. No, no, you start now. You don't know if you're going to live another hour, another week, another day, another 50 years. You don't know. What you do know is that you're alive at this moment and God has called you to make choices that line up with him right now. Okay, but nevertheless, so that's, that's halftime or so. For whatever reason, this is uh, Drucker's using that, that particular uh, reference point. The question most halftimers ask themselves is, what do I do now? The answer is to set your sights on achievements that really matter, that will make a difference in the world, and set them far enough ahead of where you are today that the journey will be demanding, but worth the effort. As Peter put it, make your life your end game. In other words, the end game for my life is every day doing the will of God. Finding the shoulds, the things I'm supposed to do, not just the coulds. There's lots of coulds. But finding those shoulds and making that my priority, do those shoulds. So that's my end game every day is to obey God. Every day, obey God. And as you walk this out, over time, you'll be able to look back and you'll be able, you'll see something of the purpose of God at more, with more clarity than you'll ever see it day by day. Day by day, it's kind of like a fog. And the only thing you probably will see today is the step you're supposed to make today. But in addition to that step you're supposed to make, there's probably going to be two or three other options there that are going to be luring you. Will you take this step? Or how about this step over here? Are you going to be so discerning, so clear that you're only going to take the step God directs you to take. That's the key. Get very intentional, very strategic about that. So you have to make your life your end game. This requires vision. You have to have some vision for your life. So here's some text, Psalm 90, verse 12. 
teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom is a heart that is able to distinguish the should from the could. Here's Psalm 39, verse four through seven. I'm not gonna read that, but I commend that to you. In Ecclesiastes 7, verse two, he gives us another one of those verses that we would really like to cut out of the Bible. You, you, have you got a list of verses that you like to cut out of the Bible? If you don't have a list, you probably ought to start a list because those are the verses most likely the Holy Spirit is really trying to get your attention with. And the reaction, you're having a reaction internally that you don't like it, so you want to cut it out. So Ecclesiastes 7.2 is one of those things that I've, I've had to wrestle with. Better to go to the house of mourning than to a house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, that is mourning, because we all will die barring the return of Christ. And the living should take this to heart. What happens when you go to a house of feasting? Well, there's all kinds of frivolity and fun and all that going on, but it's largely unreality. But what happens when you go to a house of mourning? You're facing reality right there in front of you. This person just died. We're going to bury him and barring the return of Christ one day, I'm going to be that person. I'm going to die. That is reality. Now, I've got time between now and then. I don't know how long it is, but I have every day an opportunity to choose alignment with God. So I've got to begin to get vision. I've got to develop vision. God wants to give me that vision. It's not something I have to conjure up. It's something I get to discover by virtue of his intentionality in creating me. You're not an accident. He has put you here sovereignly to accomplish his purpose in his great meta-narrative. So at this point uh, is, is the time for the first exercise. And next week, uh, when Bob and Gay are working with you on the exercises, uh, they'll have you do this exercise. And you can go ahead and start on it now. And this is an exercise to have you write your eulogy. Will you now project yourself out on the day of your funeral? And you write down what you think the Holy Spirit wants to be said about your life. Now, do you hear how I phrase that? It's not what you want to be said. It's what the Holy Spirit wants to say about your life. That could be very different. And you have to keep in mind, there's very specific things that God has created you to do. As you look around the room and you look at the people here, do you see anybody in this room that looks like you? You see anybody that's in this room that's come from your family? Anybody in this room that, that maybe is born in the context you were born in, has had the background you had, the education you've had, the training? How about the aptitudes you have, the skill and ability? How about the personality you have? You see, most likely you are very different from everybody in this room. Even mother-daughter. We have a mother-daughter here. And there's still differences. And these differences are the clues. As you look at the differences, then you begin to see something to the purpose of God. Now, what most people do with this exercise is they start writing down the things that they want said about them. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good wife. I want to be a good parent. I want to be a good Christian. You know, I want to give a lot to missions. Uh, I want to, uh, you know, serve the Lord in everything I do. I want to be a witness. I want to lead many people to Christ. I want to lead many Bible studies. I mean, all these things, all are good things. But what are you called to do? And how does that fit in specifically 
with the call of God in your life. You remember Queen Esther? Remember her? She had a very unique calling that required her to put her life on the line to potentially save her people. She didn't know if it would succeed or not. She had to take a step of faith, and faith always involves some risk. You have to have vision to be able to take that step of faith. And she was given vision by virtue of her her benefactor and her guardian, who was her cousin, who guided her into recognizing that God has put you in the position of being the queen of this pagan empire, even though you were an orphan slave girl. How does an orphan slave girl become a queen? How does that work? That's called divine divine directing events to get her into that position. And now are you going to put your life on the line and now be God's agent to save his people or not? You see, an orphan slave girl had a purpose. You have a purpose. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, where you live. God has a purpose for your life. So the more you can get the specifics about what your call is, the more clear you're going to have with you develop, or more clear you're going to be on your vision for your life. So that's what this exercise is for: is to begin to challenge you. Now, if you're like most, most people can't get very far in getting to the specifics. They stay pretty general. They they make comments that most everyone could make or should make. The way you know you're getting to the specifics is when you start making comments in your eulogy that people look at and say, wow, that is unique to you. I mean, I don't know anybody else that does that but you. Now you're getting into the specifics of the purpose of God for your life. So that's the challenge of that exercise. So now the second part of session one here is now to begin to challenge you to think about God's vision for your life. You know, it's so easy to just come up with, make up our own dream, make up our own vision. But God is calling us to put that aside. So do you get back to my little picture here? We have this vision we might conjure up that's largely our fleshly vision. God's got his vision over here. Okay, am I willing to set this aside and move over and take God's vision? Or am I going to ask God to come meet me halfway? You know, that's kind of what we like to do. You know, God, I see you've got that vision for me. I kind of see it. But really, I like this one over here. Can we, can we compromise? God's not into compromising. That's not his deal. He's into asking us to die to serve his purpose. Jesus said, if you don't hate your father and mother, your brothers and sisters, you know, you can't love me. Now, that's pretty radical. If you, if you can't die, you can't live. That's pretty radical. You've got to give up everything to follow me. If you can't be the servant of all, you can't be the leader. I mean, these, these things are just mind-boggling when you look at them, and we almost kind of read them and just gloss over them because we don't know what to do with them. Instead, we should let them challenge us to where we can say what Jesus said when he was tempted you know, by this enemy and say, hey, you're hungry, you've been out here for 40 days, 40 nights, you're starving. If you're the son of God, turn those boulders into bread. And Jesus I can do it. I am the son of God, but I haven't been directed to do it. Wow. I could do it, but I haven't been told I should do it. That kind of intentional living is where God wants us to get to. So that's his vision for our life. Now, as we begin to to try to get a picture of God's intentionality for our lives, we have to understand what God is doing. 
he has this great historical event called a meta-narrative. You probably heard the term meta-narrative. Meta means great and narrative means story. It's the great story of history. The meta-narrative is what God is executing through time. Have you ever wondered why when Adam and Eve sinned that God didn't just fix it right then? You ever wonder that? Like, okay, they sinned, they made a mistake, let's just deal with it right there, let's get it done with so we can go on and live in a redeemed world, not in a fallen world. You know, a fallen world's got all kinds of problems. You have sin, you have people murdering each other, you have manufacturing defects, you know, you have difficulties in managing people, you have difficulties in hiring people. You have difficulties in leading people. You have difficulties in getting along with people. You have wars and all kinds of things, conflicts. I mean, fallen world's kind of a nasty place. Well, why would he do this? And it's not only gone on for a few hundred years, it's gone on for thousands of years. What is going on here? And, and God's solution to all this doesn't show up for 4,000 years. Like, what? what? What's going on here? You know, sometimes we act like, like life began when Christ came. No, it didn't. It began way before. There have been who knows how many millions of people lived before Christ. And God was using them and guiding them and directing them into his purpose. He has this huge purpose going on. It involves time. And it ultimately will culminate in the full eradication of sin and death. But in the meantime, we have to deal with sin and death. And so this is part of God's meta-narrative. We don't fully understand why he's choosing to do it this way. You know, sometimes uh, the way we function um, as Christians is we kind of take the view that the big deal as Christians is to get people saved. That's the big deal. And if that really were the case, let me pose to you how we should be doing this. We need to be having these massive crusades. And we need to have invitations at the end of crusades. We need to have really great orators up there projecting the message of Christ very articulately and with very compelling messages. And so at the end, you have all these people coming up, making professions of faith, and then you take them over into a side room and you have now people lined up there talking to them and you ask each one, okay, you've come forward to make a profession of faith in Christ tonight. Yes, I have. Okay, we're so grateful you have. Now, we want to be sure that you understand what it is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to pray a prayer with you, and we want to answer any of your questions and be sure you know what it is to be a Christian. So you have that conversation, and once it's all over, you ask them one last time, are you sure you know Christ? And they say, yes, fine. Then you shoot them. Bang. Another one coming up. Okay? And so we populate heaven. I mean, that's how we think about Christianity today. Now, I'm obviously being a little bit extreme with that, but that is not far from the truth. You, we don't think about, okay, you have come to Christ, and now there's a call of God on your life, and we want to help you find that call. We want to help equip you. We want to help envision you. We want to help you execute the call of God in your life. We are here to support you. Now, we in this particular local church, we try to project that. It's very hard. It's very difficult because the culture is not expecting that. The culture thinks, well, I just need Christ so I have fire insurance. 
So I have my get out of jail free card or get out of hell free card. So I've got, you know, I've got eternal assurance and now I'm going to go live the life I want to live. That's how most professing Christians think about Christianity. And this is not the Christianity of the Bible. The Christianity of the Bible is a Christianity that says you get to die to serve Christ every day in every situation. Yes, at work. Yes, at the home. Yes, at church. Yes, in public policy. Christ is Lord of all. But we don't get that. So we have to recognize we have got a very skewed perspective of what God is doing, and we've got to get back on track with what he's doing. And it starts with understanding his story, his great story. It begins with creation, and it begins with a creation mandate that tells us why we're here. We're here to rule God's creation as his representatives, as his agents. And it also deals with the reality of sin and death. So that's the starting point. And you see, in any time you're dealing with the idea of purpose, you're dealing with linear time. So this line represents linear time from the starting point to the ending point, which will be a new creation. You see, the first two chapters of Genesis were the first creation. The last two chapters of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, are the new creation. The third chapter of the book of Genesis records the fall of man, the entrance of sin and death into human beings and into the universe. The third to the last chapter of the book of Revelation records the culmination of sin and death, the final judgment of sin and death. Interesting, the, the, symmet- the symmetry here in these two books. And then we have this interim period between you know, the beginning and the end. What is that all about? Well, Jesus gives us a little clue about that in Luke chapter 19 when he's on his way to Jerusalem and the scripture says he perceived that the people thought he was going to Jerusalem to be installed as a king. Now, you see what their thinking is? You know, we're under Roman occupation. We have not been free since we've been put into exile some five, six hundred years ago, we need to be free and Jesus is going to be our king. He's going to Jerusalem and we're going to crown him king and he's going to get rid of all the Romans. And now we will be God's people again. His, we will be his kingdom. We will be his representatives on earth. So that's what they're thinking. And Jesus realized, you know, you don't really understand God's meta narrative. So I'm going to tell you a parable. He parables them the parable of the Minas and the parable of the Mina gives us a picture of the meta-narrative today. And here's the picture. Each one of us has been given a mina. And a mina represents, let me just suggest, your time, your talent, and your treasure. I call that T3. So that mina has been given to you to steward. And then in the parable, the master, after he gives all of his servants the mina, he leaves for a period of time, and then he comes back. And he asked each servant, what did you do with my mina? You do understand that your time is not your own. We exist at the pleasure of God. If he's not pleased that we exist, we will no longer exist. That time is a gift. Our talent, did you make yourself? Are you a self-made person? Or did God make you? And you might say, well, I, I applied myself. Well, Who gave you the ability to apply yourself? Who gave you the wisdom to apply yourself? Who gave you the opportunity to apply yourself? You see, your talent has been given to you. 
How about the treasure? Whatever assets God's given you are his. Because he owns it all, you're simply a steward. So when you realize, okay, my time, my talent, my treasure, it's all his. And my job is to take what he's given to me, steward it according to his will and his ways, distinguish the could from the should, and do the should. And when you do that, there'll be fruit, a profit. So when the master comes back, he wants to know what you did with the mina, and you'll be able to say what the servant said. Master, your mina earned 10. That's a pretty good return, isn't it? Or master, your mina returned five. That's a good return. You see, this is the picture. The one situation, the one scenario that was not blessed was the one that took the mina and did nothing with it. If he did nothing with the master's mina, what did he do? He did his will. He did not take what was entrusted to him and use it in a way that would produce something that the master valued. That's what we're after. I want to take my time, talent, and treasure and do things that the master values. So this is called pragmatiomai. That's the word that's used in the the Greek language to describe what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be engaged in pragmatiomai. Now you can probably hear from the pronunciation of that word, it sounds like an English word, doesn't it? Sounds like pragmatic. Well, the literal meaning in the Greek language is it means to go conduct business. Now, you realize that even if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're conducting business. You could argue that stay-at-home moms conduct the most difficult business at all, of everyone, because they raise the next generation. That's what they do. Some of you may have seen um, the little video clip of the interview that's going on. Uh, it's a fictitious interview for a job. And so they were videoing these people, and this is a, a Skype call or go-to meeting call where you got the video for both sides, and they're having this conversation. And, and the one doing the interview tells the, the person being interviewed, well, this is a job that um, knows no boundaries. Um, there's never any time off. Uh, you're always serving everyone else. You eat last. There's um, never really any breaks. There's never any time for rest. And when the holidays come, your duties get even more exaggerated. There's more to do. And if somebody gets sick, you have to stay up and take care of them. You know, and, you know, it's just, there's just, you are considered the lowest of all beings. You're serving everyone. And, oh, you don't get paid for it. And, of course, everybody said, who in the world would ever do something like that? That's crazy. And the, the interviewer says, well, there are millions of people that actually have this job. Well, what, who? Who has this job? And he said, moms. That's the job of moms. The thankless job. Never-ending job. Of serving. Where you're always last. And of course, yes, you don't get paid. You see, we all work. We all conduct business. Even moms pragmatiomai. When you go to the workplace, you pragmatiomai. If you're a staff of a, of a Christian ministry, and I use that guardedly, I don't like that terminology, because I view, I view anybody that works in the workplace in any context is doing pragmatiomai. It doesn't matter what you do. You're a teacher, you're a physician, you're a professional, you're in public policy, it doesn't matter what you do, you pragmatiomai. You conduct business. 
You want to take your time, talent, treasure and produce something that's valuable to the master. So that's what we're here to do. Now, I don't know why God set it up this way. Why didn't he do the, you know, you know, you profess Christ, boom, you're, you're in heaven. Wouldn't that be easy? Have you ever wanted to just get it all over with, say, I'm ready to get out of here? You ever felt that way? I think many of us have, yeah. It's just gotten difficult and tough and nothing we try works and nobody seems to care about us. You know, what we do is not valued. And so let's just, hey, just give me the escalator, the elevator straight up, you know? What, how do we do that? Well, that's not the will of the master. The master has put us here to do what he's created us to do. And it may be very difficult. Have you ever thought about what it would like, been, like to be a galley slave back, you know, 2,000 years ago on a ship? Think about that, where all you did all day long was row. You ever thought about that? Like, oh, man, can I have the grace to do that? Well, if that's what you're called to do, you'll have that grace. And some way or another, it's fitting into what God is doing big picture long term. We may know very little about what that really means, but he has a purpose in all that. So you see, am I stretching you here? I mean, that's the point. It's to give to stretch you to think beyond just the way most people think. The culture just thinks about what's in it for me. That's never the right question. The right question is what's in it for God. And getting to the place where it doesn't matter what happens to me. What matters is I'm doing the will of the master every day in every situation. That's what pragmatiomai is all about. Ultimately, sin will be judged. Sin and death will be dealt with at the end. And in the meantime, as we're walking through the lives that we're given, and we're doing the pragmatiomai we're called to do, God is still on the throne. He's doing everything according to his plan and his purpose. He is a very intentional, strategic God. And for those of you that, that like to be um, on stage, you are on stage. Because actually what we're doing is we're producing a cosmic play. We don't fully understand what this means, but we know that God is using us in some way to convey truth to heavenly bodies. Look what Ephesians chapter 3 says. His intent, that is God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wow. Whether you like it or not, you're on stage. You have a bit part to play. He is the great director. He has choreographed it. He's written it. And he's executing it. And he's got all these people playing parts in his play. Our job is to discern our part and go play it. You do not have the right to go play someone else's part. You have to discern your part and play your part. So that's an, this is a way to begin to see something of how your life fits into the bigger picture of what God is doing. Now, I've, I've added to my notes here in recent days another little chart here that helps me kind of think about the meta narrative in a different way. This is looking at different events that have happened through history. And it's looking at these events from God's perspective. I call that metaphysical awareness. 
Now, I know that the New Agers will use that terminology. I'm not using it as they do. I'm using metaphysical awareness to mean seeing things from God's perspective. How does God view reality? How does he see things? So as we begin to clue into his perspective on history, we begin to see some different things. So for example, you see I have four columns here, and each of these is roughly uh, you know, 2,000 years or so. Um, not exactly, but generally two, two to 4,000, 5,000 years. So you look, for example, at the first column here, which is creation to 2000 BC. You have the creation event, and then you have the fall, and you see the term homo mensura. Homo mensura is a Latin term that means man the measure. Man the measure is a humanistic idea. It means that we get to define right and wrong. That's what Adam and Eve were so upset about. They felt like God held something back from them. You have not allowed, allowed us to have the full benefits of being your creation. You're holding back. And we need to be, be able to define right and wrong just like you do. And so that's when they sinned. Now, what we discovered as we read the account is that indeed, on some level, there is some ability to define right and wrong given to us. They can do that but they shouldn't. Today, we are living in a culture that is trying to exercise things we can do, not things we should do. So we're redefining things. We're redefining based on man being the measure. We are the metric for defining what marriage should be, what gender should be, you know, when life begins. Whose right is more important, the baby or the mother? And see, we're, we are redefining reality. We're not looking to Scripture to inform our ethical systems. We are instead assuming homo mensura. Instead, we should be using dos mensura or dos mensura, which means God the measure. So this, was, this whole homo mensura thing infects us at the beginning. And if you look all the way over to the far right-hand column, you look at from about 1600 to the present time, with very few exceptions, homo mensura has been growing, expanding. The things that are happening are being connected more to homo mensura than anything else, like the theory of evolution. This is a this was developed by men who were Christians but were wanting to be atheists but didn't know how to be intellectually satisfied as an atheist. And so what they did is they created a theory that made it intellectually satisfying to be an atheist. And so now we have the theory of evolution that now most scientists of the world consider that to be settled science. That's not settled science. It does not agree with the word of God. The only thing that's settled, really settled, is the truth of the Word of God. And the degree to which we understand it correctly is, is the degree to which we have settled anything. So homo mensura has been plaguing us for a long time. So that's an example of how that impact from the fall is really playing out through history. Now, if you look down a few more over, back over the left-hand side, you go down to the fourth item there at Tower of Babel. Now, the Tower of Babel, to me, is a fascinating story because it's a picture of innately how we human beings will function left to ourselves. What they wanted to do with the Tower of Babel was to make a name for themselves. 
That's what they were after. It was all about self-glory. And so they took things they could do and did them. They didn't do the things they should do. They did the things they could do. You see, they didn't make that distinction. And to me, that is a picture of the default of human beings today. We default to trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to make our mark, trying to be you know, somebody great, somebody important, somebody significant, instead of being an obedient servant. That's the challenge. So you see right here, we have a pattern that's now playing out through history. It's going on today, if you have eyes to see it. I mean, if you, have, if you become metaphysically aware, seeing from God's perspective, you'll begin to look at every organization and you'll be asking, what's God's view here? What's his perspective? Are they building this organization for self-glory? Are they building it to glorify God? What are they doing? It's either glorify God or glorify man. Which one is it? There's no compromise. No, you can't meet him halfway. You got to decide. It's one or the other. If this is what it is, it's a Tower of Babel. If this is what it is, now this is obedience and alignment with God. Very different. So the Tower of Babel becomes a model, a picture for us of the default condition of the human beings. Now go over to the next column and down toward the bottom. You see Homo Mensura, I've got Greeks and the Romans. The Greeks and the Romans back, you know, when they were here 2,500 years ago, they formalized humanism. They formalized homo mensura. They really put it into put structure and a philosophy with it, a value system with it, principles and practices with it. And so they really have provided the bedrock by which that the cultures since them have gone astray. Virtually everything in Western philosophy, according to the philosophers I've read, can be traced back to the Greeks. That thinking all is basically Greek thinking. So this is where Homo Mensura kind of went into a more formal structure here. Then I want you to look over to the next, uh, next column there, and you'll see at the top, you see Christ and the New Testament ecclesia. And then if you look to the column to the left, you see the Old Testament ecclesia. That Greek word there is ecclesia. That's the word that's translated in English, church. Now, in the Old Testament, ecclesia is never translated church. But the word ecclesia is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. What it's really saying is the ecclesia is a compound word, which means ek is out of, and kaleo means call. So it's called out. Israel was God's called out people to be his salt and light in the world. Well, now in the times after Christ, we have a called out people, which we call the church. So it's important to recognize God has always got his people. The question is how aligned are his people with him? That's the challenge. And so what part of our calling has got to be making steps toward alignment with God, obedience to God. Then uh, if you look down toward the bottom of the third column there, you see Reformation theologically and scientifically. Uh, theological Reformation is when we return to a more pure understanding of Scripture that you see in the Reformers. And by the way, I, I think most of you know that this is the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation this year. 
2017. Uh, historically, we view the Reformation beginning in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 Theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, Germany, as a sign of, of requesting a debate on those, th- those points. And that became a lightning rod then for what became the, the Reformation. At the same time, or very close thereafter, there was a Reformation scientifically. And that's when, that's when uh, Isaac Newton stepped up and said, you know, the philosophy that we're accepting today is based on, on polytheism. I am not a polytheist. I am a Christian. I believe in the God of the Bible. And so he rejected the polytheistic theory of science that had been in play for 2,000 years because Aristotle had put it in play and people had just bought it. Nobody had questioned it until Newton came along. He came along and began to bring biblical thinking to science and that opened the door for the technological revolution we've seen over the last 500 years. It all happened because of men and women of God pursuing the call of God on their life. And so we could go, obviously, spend a lot of time going through all these various significant events in history, but you begin to see the hand of God in all of these events. You begin to see from his perspective. And as you do that, you begin to ask the question, how does he want to use me? How do I fit in to what he's doing, to these events of history? Because, see, you see, I stopped at 2100 here. I don't, I don't know how much further we go. Another two, three thousand, five thousand years, we don't know how much further this goes. But we know this. This is something of what we've seen in the past. Why would this stop? Why would he all of a sudden do, do something totally different? I think we're going to continue to see major events tied to historical realities. And as you begin to look at these and understand these, you begin to get vision for maybe where you fit in. Can you believe that? If you can believe that, now you can begin to think more like God thinks. You can become more metaphysically aware. Just a few final comments before we stop here. Is God active in this creation? Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 11 to me is so clear on this. He said, I am God, there is no other. There is no other God. I am God, there's none like me. I make known the end from the beginning which means I define when you come in, I define when you go out. I define when an organization starts, I define when it shuts down. He defines it all. I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. You notice he doesn't say a flock. He says a bird. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. He doesn't say an army. He doesn't say a group. Now there's nothing wrong with those, but he's showing you how individual he is. We're certainly supposed to live as part of a community, but each individual in the community counts. That's what we have to get clear on. What I have said, I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. You see, God is very engaged in his creation. There are no accidents. Whatever it happens, God is strategically using those things to accomplish his purpose. And this text in Romans 9, I'll let you read it at your own convenience. It just illustrates this point. Even Pharaoh, this wicked ruler, Pharaoh, was raised up for God's purposes. 
You see, God even uses sin. Proverbs says this, God creates everything for a purpose, even the wicked for a day of evil. Now, that's one of those verses we like to cut out because we don't like that idea. We want God just to love everybody and save everybody. Well, I'm sorry, that's not what he seems to do. If we're reading the biblical record, and indeed the Christian community for 2,000 years has concluded that God is not going to save everyone, we don't understand why. It may seem unfair and unjust to us, but it's not unfair and it's not unjust. It is aligned with his purpose, which tells us immediately If you know Christ as your Savior, you ought to be really thankful. What a gift. That is an incredible gift to know Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And who am I to question how he chooses to run his universe? That is not in my purview. My job is to line up with him. Humbly submit to him. Align with his purposes. Discover the reason he created me, which he wants me to discover which as I engage with him, he will reveal to me and now walk out, dying to myself, dying to my will and do his will. That's the way to live life. That's the way to be a Christian. In fact, as far as I can tell, reading scripture, that's the only way to be a Christian. If you think you have the option of having Jesus as your savior, but not as your Lord, I don't know where go in scripture to support that idea. Scripture tells us Jesus is Savior and Lord. And if he's Lord, he's in charge. So may we have grace to live under his lordship in Jesus' name.